2: This is Reasons
0: to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: Hello. Hello. How are you? Fine. And we're on the next stage of our journey through understanding the climate crisis and the COP and really why it matters. And, you know, in this uh, COP 101... Not as in Room 101, but as in, you know, the beginner's guide to, yes. I don't know why it's 101, but anyway, leave that to one side. Um... In COP 101, we've gone through the history of the climate crisis and sort of when it emerged and the role of the cops in that. Then we got into the science and the effects on vulnerable countries, which we heard last week. And this week, we're into the politics, Jeff. Mm.
1: I have two yep. things to say. Number one is you're getting so passionate about this. You're gesticulating a lot. And it was reminding me of Magnus Pike, who I used to see on television when I was uh, when I was a boy.
3: Hmm, maybe I could be the sort of modern Magnus Pike. I don't think of you in
1: that way. And then, secondly, you know, I'm always interested in the politics of any given situation because one day I would love to be uh, an Eminon Squeeze. Is is that how you say it?
3: Yes, I think it is.
1: How, how how does one go about doing that?
3: What does it mean,
1: Grease? Actually, is Grease not pig, Is it or is it? No, I don't know. But is, are you kind of if you're an Eminon Squeeze, are you are you the the power behind the power? Are you whispering? in the ears of people striding the corridors of power? Are you the
3: puppet master? This, this is how I'm seeing myself. You're an eminence. You're an eminence. Thank you. Yeah. And, and so we're talking to some really fantastic people. Um, Pete Betts, who was chief negotiator for the UK for a long time, including when I was the climate change secretary. He's the man who rang me when I was standing in my pants as the Copenhagen summit was going down the toilet and said, you've got to come and try and save it from going down the toilet. Uh, we'll be talking to Pete about the cops and, you know, what we're looking for from COP26. Then environmental lawyer activist Fahana Yameen. She works with lots of the vulnerable countries talking about what uh, needs to happen. And then we we heard a bit of from him last um, week, but we'll be hearing from Salim al-Haq, so that's what we've got coming up. While
1: you were just telling us all that, I Googled Grease. It's grey. The reason I said pig was it's, uh, it's it's pig in Swedish. And
3: what's eminence? Then? It's probably some kind of eminence,
1: I'm guessing. Well, you're at least one of those two things. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the subject of politics, I have another COP question to ask you. In terms of the world leaders and the negotiating teams that go there, does, does stuff actually happen and get decided at the cop itself or is it like these g7 and g20 summits can sometimes be where you get a bunch of presidents and prime ministers and politicians lining up on a lawn and having
3: their picture taken well that's why i hope boris johnson is listening to this podcast because um you know it isn't a big glamorous photo opportunity where you sort of put your thumbs up and just say you know hurrah right i mean well, you know he won't of, go now that he has, he's heard there, that. There's quite a lot of hard work involved, and, and it is really complex and fraught. And look, it's a bit like 193-dimensional chess, if that's the thing, because you've got 190-something countries, and it's got to be agreed by unanimity. Wow. I mean, think of 192 people that you know and gathering them all in a room to agree something.
1: And are there big surprises then? Or How, how often is it the case that there's a cop? and something extraordinary happens that that's completely out of the blue.
3: I'm not sure it's really like, it's not quite like that. Okay, okay. It's, it's... not quite like that because probably by the time they get to Glasgow, countries will have said what their pledges are mm. and they'll be haggling over some really important issues. Um, but, I mean, look, the, the cop that's surprised the most is probably Copenhagen and I think people don't really want too many surprise, more surprises like that.
2: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
1: We're going to start by hearing more from Pete Betts. You may remember that in our first COP episode, Pete explained that this is the most important COP since the Paris Agreement in 2015. And he told us that under the Paris Agreement, countries made initial commitments to reduce their emissions, but that they were nowhere near enough to put the world on track to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. So countries also agreed to come back every five years with more ambitious emission targets to try and close this gap. Glasgow is the first COP after that five-year deadline. And so we'll be asking Pete what a good outcome of this COP would look like.
3: I bore you rigid even now that you don't work for me anymore – uh, by talking to you about gigatons. So I think it's time to bore our listeners rigid too. Um, I mean, basically, to impress people at a party, um, uh, here's here's the thing you need to know. And basically, you don't need to listen to the rest of the podcast. You just need to know this. The world is on track, what was on track in its pledges at Paris, to have 53 to 55 gigatons of uh, emissions in 2030 including the Paris pledges, which is about three degrees of warming, a bit less. To have two degrees of warming, the world needs to be at 40 gigatons in 2030. 41 gigatons, sorry. And to have one and a half degrees of warming, the world needs to be at about 25 gigatons. This is a UNEP emissions gap report, bedtime reading for all the family. So the thing I oppress you with
1: before you ask that question can I just say since you've started bringing this up at parties have you found that you're invited (laughs) to fewer and fewer parties I I have rather
3: actually I've been yeah it's interesting isn't it anyway how close to one and a half degrees to that 25 gigatons how close could we get to that kind of outcome in Glasgow
4: I, I was going to be wary of getting to numbers but you've done it so so the to one and a half degrees to get to 25, 24 gigatons, it's about 29 gigatons of additional abatement compared to what we have at the moment. So we've got to have more than halve emissions from where they are today and achieve 29 additional gigatons, billion tons of abatement. We've got pledges or commitments from the big developed countries. Now, those countries, particularly the US, have not done enough in the past, but they are you know, arguably at the top end of of what we thought was possible. So we've got the Americans committing to reduce by 50 percent by 2030. The EU's at 55. The UK's doing 68. Japan is 46. And Canada's 40 to 45. Now, these are top end of what we thought was doable. If you add all these additional abatement up from these additional commitments, it's about three gigatons set against that 29 that we need so we're not going to get much more from those countries so you know what the big emerging economies do is crucial and at the moment the, the big emerging economies are some of them are contesting the very notion that they should increase their ambition at all the saudis the indians and the chinese to some degree are pushing back on the whole notion they should raise their ambition
3: just to interject that it's just worth underlining this that the developed countries, in my view, uh, I think the numbers say they have, the, the, like America hasn't done enough, their 50 isn't enough. But even if America did more, we can get some more gigatons out. But China is like massive in this. So like 28, 28%, isn't it, of total greenhouse gas emissions. What China does, if 2030 is the absolute like key moment, what kind of reductions we've had by 2030... What China does in the next decade is absolutely massive, yeah?
4: Exactly, exactly right. It's bigger than the entire G7. And, of course, you know, China will think rightly that developed countries, particularly the US, have not done enough in the past. They will point, you know, to some degree rightly that they still have a lot of poor people, you know, but still what they do matters more. And their current commitment is to peak their emissions before 2030, But most analysts think Chinese emissions will peak anyway before 2025. So, you know, they've got a very modest target. And if they were to announce something ambitious, could be a game changer. It's not going to deliver 29 gigatons, but it could deliver a lot more. I mean, there are reasons why it might be in China's interest to do more. You know, they are suffering the impacts of climate change themselves. You know, it's getting cheaper for them to do this, just as it is for us with renewable energy falling in price and so on. They want to capture these new industries, producing solar panels and so on, and they do care about their international reputation. So you can see why there might be reasons that President Xi might decide to do this, but there's also these other factors which hold them back.
3: And, and Pete, talk to us about the other gigatons. So you've got the developed world, do a bit, can can make a bit of a difference. China, big difference. Where, where else are these gigatons going to come Could these gigatons come from? This is the question I... I mean, actually, I've had this conversation with you about three times this week.
4: So you can cut it sort of sectorally or, or, or around countries. I mean, if you do it sectorally, there's a big chunk of emissions, depending on how you count coming from land use, maybe maybe 10 gigatons from you know deforestation. And if you could, you know, if you can help countries reduce their deforestation, if you can move to sustainable supply chain for agricultural produce, if you could support these developing countries to make the shift, that would be a huge, huge win. The big emerging economies clearly matter, you know, so India… Brazil, is Russia… Yeah, India. India is obviously a poor country, so, but, you know, and so you have to take that into account, but at the same time, you know, India is really taking off with renewable energy, it's cheaper, and so, if, you know, the more you can expand that, Indonesia, Brazil, are mostly forest, although they, have got, um, they have got growing industrial emissions… Russia has got a very modest target. Climate has never been a particular priority. The the big Middle Eastern economies, if they were to do more. But I'm right in saying, aren't
3: I, that 80% of the um, emissions comes from the G20, yeah? Exactly right. So, So the G20 is like massive. The G20 countries are massive in this. Now the pledges on
1: reducing emissions are crucial, but they're not the only issue at COP. So let's talk about the commitment that rich countries made to deliver 100 billion dollars a year of climate finance to developing countries. Can you uh, can you explain what that commitment involves, why it's so important? And whether we're likely to see it met in
3: Glasgow. Am I right in saying, Pete, that this came out of... This was Gordon Brown's idea, wasn't it, in Copenhagen or before Copenhagen? It
4: was. He made a speech at London Zoo back in July, I think it was, 2009, uh, putting forward this proposition of $100 billion.
3: It's a very Gordon number, I have to say.
4: <laughs> I think first first thing to say is the intellectual case for providing this money is very strong. So first of all, you know, poor countries are suffering the impacts of climate change. We have to help them to adapt. And secondly, we want developing countries to reduce their emissions. So, you know, nudging countries onto a different development path in a little bit of well-placed public finance could be really crucial. And then the second thing is we committed to this. We, the developed countries, committed to this back in 2009 and we haven't delivered. And it was supposed to have been delivered by 2020, and we've fallen. Sh- we don't have the final numbers, but it's very clear we have fallen short. So we we have to demonstrate that we that we it, we're going to we're delivering this this year or next and going to exceed it. And you know we've had some big increases in pledges of finance from some of the developed countries, but we need more. We need to show well before Glasgow that we we've met this pledge and it's a it is a trust issue
1: but there there is a positivity around this that it will happen
4: i think we will get there yeah i think i think this target will be met
3: i mean it's worth saying isn't it pete that this hundred billion was conceived at london zoo or before london zoo i mean since then we've become much more aware of the scale of devastation that is going to be caused to many developing countries and adaptation that is going to be necessary. I mean, some people say 300 billion by 2030, we've got massive COVID problems in developing countries, including significant vaccine shortage. So, I mean, there's a case for overshooting this, isn't there really? I mean, to to really build trust.
4: I think you're right. I think you're completely right. And, uh, and for overshooting in the years after 2020, But also in Glasgow, we have to sort of set out the framing for negotiating a new goal after 2025. And I imagine that there'll be pressure, rightly, for that goal to be higher. But I do think you're right that the sort of anger in the developing world is a big risk for the COP. You know, there is a lot of anger about the impact of COVID, which, you know, whereas we've been able to borrow our way out of this, um, they haven't. You know, so it's 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 a health crisis, it's an economic crisis for them, and now they can't access vaccines. You know, I think there is a lot of uh, there's a lot a lot of anger and mistrust in the development, world, and it could well spill over into the COP in ways that could be quite hard to handle.
1: Can I ask you about this concept of loss and damage? Could you explain that to me? And and uh, from what I understand, it's very a, a thorny one. Um, Talk to us a bit about why why that is and um, what we can expect at Glasgow.
4: Yeah, so I mean, the notion of loss and damage is that you know, for example, there are you, you know you can adapt to the impacts of climate change. You know, you can build a higher well, sea wall or you can um, you know grow different crops. But there are some damages and so you just cannot you cannot adapt to they're just, they're just losses, and that has become associated sometimes, or that doesn't necessarily need to be, with the notion of formal legal liability falling on developed countries and an obligation to pay compensation as opposed to support and that has been extremely contested so it's a very tricky one because i I don't think the big it's not just the us i mean the europeans are pretty would be very reluctant to go down this route and of course that we they would argue that actually if you're really going to start attributing blame then a lot of emissions are increasingly coming from developing countries as well emerging economies so it is a very contested one. I mean, I don't know where the solution lies, but there's a whole raft of things we could do in the real world that might address some of the concern. But, you know, this you know, this notion of a new funding stream for, for loss and damage is likely to be a highly contested one. Pete, um,
3: we were together at Copenhagen. It didn't go so well. I wasn't at Paris. It went pretty well. On the sort of Copenhagen on one side of the spectrum, Paris on the other side of the spectrum in terms of uh, sort of failure success, how are, you, how are you feeling about sort of COP26? I
4: mean, just a word about Paris and Copenhagen first. I mean, Copenhagen in some ways, in substance, wasn't as wasn't as bad as people thought. And in equally, Paris was kind of not as good as people thought. You know, it was all about, you know, expectation management and a little bit where the stakeholder community were the greens at the time of paris were in a very pragmatic phase they were willing to call a set of commitments in paris that took us about you know a third or a half the way to two degrees let alone one and a half degrees success you know i I think that the sort of top end of expectations could see us take a very substantial chunk out of that 29 gigatons but you know not definitely not half, you know, but a big chunk and, you know, lay the conditions for more ambitious action in the future and sort of leave everyone with a sense of increasing inevitability. You know, I do think this transformation is inevitable. That's about driving it and accelerating it and making it as orderly as possible because it is going to happen. And then a a less ambitious outcome would be, you know, know where we don't get much from the emerging economies we get much more incremental step forward and and we get you know some of the other things alongside it and then a bad outcome would be a would be some kind of breakdown uh, which I think is not impossible
1: and just finally, is there a moment at the end of a COP where you see the commitment that has been made as a number for Ed to go away and talk about at parties, or do you, do you only really get a sense of it after the dust has settled and a period of weeks or months have of, of passed?
4: So I think for this COP, we will, in all likelihood, know what countries have pledged before the COP. So we'll know where we stand, and we'll know that it's like a step forward, but we'll also know it's not enough. So, you know, the real question is, what do we do about that? What does the world do about that? How do we respond? And I expect that conversation will start to come through, you know, stronger and stronger in the course of the car when into the second week.
3: Well, look, um, Pete Betts, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
3: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: We're going to return now to Fahana Yamin, uh, who, amongst other things, is an advisor to the Climate Vulnerable Forum. And we're going to get her perspective
3: on what needs to happen at COP26. Turning to COP26, how would you summarise what you think the most important things are that need that that needs to be about, the outcomes of COP26?
2: To keep to the promises and the commitments that were made. You know, that's a fundamental part of all human societies and relationships that, you know, promises are sacred and legal promises should be even more sacred, right? And actually what this COP is about is about whether in the richer countries, the US, the EU, the Canadas, the Australias, whether they will keep their promises that they made back in 2009 when you and I were uh, 10 years younger Um, and one of those is to deliver the 100 billion by 2020 which was in fact last year and uh, that has to be delivered it should have been delivered already you know it's already 2021 there was promises to ratchet up ambition you know because we knew that we were always falling behind the science and emissions pathways and so we have to commit to catching up because we said we would catch up.
3: and you're an advisor to the climate vulnerable forum i think it's worth saying to our listeners the really important role that vulnerable countries have played in pushing ambition for example around 1.5 degrees so so perhaps you can explain what you what we mean by climate vulnerable countries and 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 how we can put their needs and voices at at the heart of the cop
2: the, the Climate Vulnerable Forum are 48 countries that convene at the minister and heads of state level. Um, and they're mainly small islands, you know, from the Marshall Islands to Bangladesh, most of the Latin American countries. So these countries don't have that much clout, you know, internationally. They don't have huge economies. They are small players and they band together.
3: And what's really interesting, Farhana, sorry to interrupt, is, is that, you know, two degrees was for a long time seen as the quote-unquote dangerous tipping point and the objective for the world. It was the vulnerables who pushed 1.5 into Paris. And it's very interesting listening to John Kerry recently. You know, you can criticize the US for still not doing enough and, you know, being so late to the party and all that. But 1.5 has now become the sort of central focus of the U.S. administration and the vulnerables have moved the debate, haven't they?
2: Yeah, yeah. It's taken a decade. So the "dying the ditch" issue for the the climate vulnerable in Copenhagen, which is 2009, was a reference to 1.5. They refused to sign off on those um, on the COP decision. Then, you know, uh, at that time. Uh, so this is 11 years ago. And 11 years ago, the scientists had already alerted the world that actually two degrees was not safe at all for vulnerable countries. So these countries were relying on science, you know, and we've won the science battle. You know, we're here to celebrate actually the achievement and to build resolve and courage for everyone listening. Because there's a lot of like, oh, let's give up. It's too late. We're so close to this target. Let's all give up now. And it's like. Dude, we could have given up. We were told to give up ten years ago. It's, we're not going to give up now. You know, we, this is what these countries say, Farhana. How how can people ask us to give up our own existence? Would you do that? And it said, no. It's not even a a, a question that crosses anyone's heads.
3: And and you've you've um made reference to this already, Farhana. But it's just worth underlining it and get, and maybe you could expand upon it. You know, mitigation, reducing emissions is absolutely vital. But for lots of the countries that you work with, it's as much about the loss and damage they're going to face, uh, how that is going to be paid for, uh, adaptation, all of those things. Just talk to us about that and also what it means sort of on the ground in reality.
2: Look, you're seeing, you know, pictures from Germany. You know, this is a little bit closer to home. We've had flooding in this country, you know, several times now. It's easier to understand, you know, what happens when you see people that live and speak and uh, are housed in homes and stuff like you. And what is happening is that many times over and most of the time it's not reported here. So millions of people are subject to flooding Millions of people are already displaced. Millions of shops, livelihoods, businesses literally go go down the drain or float off, and people have to start from scratch. And they don't have deep pockets, and they don't have Angela Merkel, who is, you know, essentially bailing out and supporting those who've been who've been uh, caught out, just as our government does. As is right, as is right. You know, when when people suffer these catastrophic. Uh, uh, problems um, and they may not have insurance. They often have insurance in these countries, but uh, insurance doesn't always cover everything. They certainly don't have insurance in many of the countries that we are speaking of. Insurance isn't provided, it's not that you can afford it. There's, there is no insurance, you know, no one will insure losses of that kind. So that's what they've been campaigning for. And in fact, in the 1992 convention, you know, we had a reference to insurance put in by the island states in 1992. So they've been asking for different insurance mechanisms to be set up. They have been at the forefront of demanding, you know, financial sort of solutions. They haven't been asking for handouts. They've been saying, let's collaborate. And should damages happen, let's create a system that works for us. And that's what they're also going to be demanding at this COP. They're coming here for justice and solutions. They're not coming here to make us feel bad or guilty they just you know they just want to survive and thrive really.
1: Now this COP is in Glasgow which means the UK has the presidency do you want to give us kind of a school report on how the UK government is doing going into the COP and whether you feel that we are showing leadership here in this country?
2: Look the the UK's own assessment of itself is highly inflated and it's not you know it's not what the rest of the world necessarily is is in agreement with so it's true that we phased out uh, coal power but actually uh, you know we will re- rely a lot on gas and we're still you know hugely exploiting our oil we're about to grant a new license to a, 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 an oil field just off off Scotland we were about to open a coal mine this is what the world saw it's like oh, you're no longer, you're, you're apparently going net zero and you're telling everyone that we need to get ourselves off fossil fuels, but here you are digging out coal and about to grant a new oil licence. Um, so I don't think other countries see us as quite the model that we, you know, are saying that this government is saying it's mostly, you know, kind of a lot of lip service, um, then really the best that we could really show.
1: So how does, how does that set us up then to show leadership? And, and actually, in the context of a COP, how important is what comes from the, the presidency or the host country?
2: There's a mixture of things. Uh, so I think leadership in terms of walking the walk, both emission, on the emission reduction side and if you're a rich country, showing that you've also fulfilled your financial obligations. So on both fronts, the UK is not sending out the right signals. We've just cut our aid, the 0.7, and said more or less it's permanent for the next few years because of the conditions that are attached. We're not able then to goad other countries to step up if we're not stepping up in that same way. So that really does matter. Uh, um, uh, I think the diplomatic and the technical skills you know, the ability to listen and be an honest broker, all of those are great and important. But at this particular COP, you know, that's not what we're looking for. We just need action and we need the delivery of those promises. You know, that's that's all that matters, actually. The delivery um, is, is needed to establish the trust. And that's where the UK is falling short, I'm afraid.
1: Finally, we are talking again to Salim al Director of the International Centre for Climate Change and Development in Bangladesh. Salimul, just a few months to go now. And what is your sense of how the preparations for the COP are going?
5: Well, I am very hopeful. I remain very hopeful. You know, I'm uh, one of the few people uh, who have been to all 25 COPs uh, so far. So, you know, I have a long track record of the COPs. I, I don't go as a negotiator. I go as an observer. What's your memories of Berlin, Salimo? I remember Berlin very well because Angela Merkel was at that time, you remember, you remember cop chair. And, and she helped us uh, negotiate the Kyoto Protocol, the uh, the setting up of the process for the Kyoto Protocol. Have you got the memorabilia from the different cops? Have you got little souvenirs? I have my badges. I have my
3: badges from all, all, oh, all the cops I've badges. been at. Yeah. Oh, that, is, that is interesting. I'm, so, so let's go back to COP26. So you're mm-hmm. feeling optimistic.
5: Yeah, I always feel optimistic. I think, you know, that, that's, that's why I keep going at this, even in the face of reality, uh, which would make me a cynic if, if I were to, uh, you know, let it overcome me. Um, however, there's a mountain to climb. Uh, the, the COP26, you know, we have not been doing enough uh, until now. We are not on path to 1.5 degrees We are not, we haven't delivered or you haven't delivered the $100 $100 billion uh, promise that was made a long time ago. Um, And now we have a new problem on our hands, which we can't shirk anymore, which is loss and damage from climate change. You know, you're having it right now, floods in the UK, Germany's floods, Belgium floods. Uh, This is now inevitable. It's going to get worse. Uh, We have entered what I call the era of loss and damage from climate change. And, And in the negotiations that you know, this has always been a very politically sensitive issue. Which has to shed its politics and be taken seriously by everybody going into COP 26. So, you said earlier you'd been at the every one of the 25 previous
3: cops, and I think you previously had said that the COP processes were no longer fit for purpose. Where where are you now on this COP sort of question?
5: Sure. So let me let me give you my um, my argument for that. It is that. I feel that COP21 with the Paris Agreement is sort of the pinnacle of the achievements of the UN Framework Convention process. We have an agreement. We will keep temperature below 1.5. The rich countries will give 100 billion a year to the developing countries. The agreement is there. All countries have agreed. So now we need to be implementing what we have agreed. There's nothing new to agree in COP26. It's just reviewing progress or lack of progress. And so what I think the COP should become is what I call inside-out COPs, where it's not about negotiating what to do, but about implementing what we've already agreed. And we should be giving center stage to anybody who's doing things, a country doing things, a city doing things, a, a mayor doing things, a company doing things, the implementers. The Paris Agreement needs to be implemented by everybody, not just governments. And so implementation of what we have already agreed, we want implementation by everybody to be a center stage and celebrated and given to the media, whereas you know what happens in the COP, the media just focuses on negotiations into the late night on arcane wording and commas that nobody outside even understands. <laughs> You're a veteran of this, you've seen it yourself. Uh, you know, that, that's not a fit for purpose anymore. Uh, you know, the negotiation should be in the back room and the front rooms, the center stage should be implementers, people who are doing things. Isn't the fundamental
3: problem this, which is we've ended up with a a process which has got us somewhere because it's got us a high level ambition to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees and it's got a process for countries providing their voluntary nationally determined contributions the 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 efforts they're willing to make but we don't really have an easy way to close the gap between the high level ambition and the adding up of the pledges
5: absolutely and the only
3: and the only thing we have really is public pressure and that's why i sort of think these cops do have a role because it's a sort of embarrassment um forum to try and embarrass world leaders Absolutely. I mean embarrass is maybe the wrong word, but <laughs> put pressure on world leaders to say you've got to step up.
5: Yeah. Well I agree with you entirely. And I, I would in fact use a stronger word. I, I I would say name and shame. You know, we they every country agreed six years ago, twenty fifteen Paris Agreement, to do things. You have not done it. If if you have not done it and you're not on track to doing it, we should be shunning you. We should not be you know, welcoming you and allowing you to peddle more uh, promises that you don't intend to keep. There are bad faith negotiations. I'll actually name a country, Australia. Australia is not negotiating in good faith. They have no intention of implementing the Paris Agreement. They are just a spokesperson for the coal industry in their country and that they're not the only fossil fuel uh, 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 representing country, as you know in the negotiation. There's several of them. Time to name and shame them. You know, they are are impediments to the process. And they're beyond embarrassment, by the way. You know, they don't get embarrassed. They need to be pressured in a much more significant manner.
3: Can I ask you about the US and China in that context? How do you rate the efforts of the Biden administration, the decision to offer a target of 50% reductions in emissions by 2030 compared to 2005? And what about the China and the prospect there of them showing the kind of ambition in the near term that is required?
5: So those two countries are absolutely key. They, they need to be talking. The two countries need to be, they are the key. If those two countries cannot agree to take us forward, then we're in big, big bad shape. They are the key uh, to unlocking everything else. Um, and I remain optimistic. I, I think they will see the writing on the wall and they will do the right thing you know, China is investing heavily in renewables. It, they're, they're by far the biggest uh, investor in the renewable. They're going to lead their world in renewables going forward. It's, a, it's a, you know, in their own interest to switch as quickly as possible from fossil to renewable. You know, they're reluctant to do that. They have a lot of coal, etc. These are all arguments. But, you know, one of the good things I'll, I'll share with you Ed, that I see happening both in China and India, these are genuine debates in the country on what is the best way forward for China and for India. Uh, there are people saying, you know, we have cheap coal, we should use it. And then there are people saying, no, why? We should be going for renewables. So these are good debates to have and and they should come out in, in favor of doing what's best for their own citizens and their own countries, which I believe is investing in the renewables.
3: Now, Salim, we met at the ill-fated Copenhagen... Uh summit. Um, Are you going to be in Glasgow? Do you think that's going to be possible COVID-wise and so on?
5: Well, I had, uh, having been to 25, I thought I would retire after 25. Uh, But I I think Glasgow is going to be very important. So I will try and get there. I have registered, I have uh, observation, observer status. Hopefully with the COVID situation, I'll be able to travel and make it to Glasgow. So yes, I, I plan to go and I look forward to being there. Well, fingers crossed
3: I'll see you there. Salim al-Haq, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank
5: you. Look forward to seeing you.
2: Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
1: I should mention that you can head to our website cheerfulpodcast.com for more information on these episodes and COP26 itself. Next week is the final episode of this summer mini-series. We are going to be talking to activists about the role that the climate movement is playing in putting pressure on world leaders at the COP. We should thank our guests, Pete Betts, Fahana Yamin and Salim Al-Huk. Emma Caution produces our podcast. Joel Pierce does all the research and finds the guests, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dents. Our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. I've been Jeff Lloyd. And this has been your guide to COP26 from Reasons to be Cheerful.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.